1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and I'm really happy to be joined by Yanis Varoufakis to talk about his new book, Technofeudalism. What Killed Capitalism?, which was published towards the end of last year by Melville House. Ennis, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Dweezer.
0: So I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with your work, um, but for the benefit of those who aren't, (laughs) could you just tell us a little bit about your background, um, both in kind of academia and the wider political sphere?
1: Well, I'm an academic economist. Uh, I spent decades working on something called game theory. Very esoteric. I was writing books for 20, 30 people at most (laughs) around the world. And I was very happy doing that until uh, sometime around the early 2000s, I started feeling that um, a major tsunami was coming away from Wall Street, similar to 1929. And then I started panicking, literally panicking. And I decided that I didn't have the moral right to confine myself to my esoteric, mathematical, economic uh, thinking and uh, work. So I started speaking out uh, and, you know, one thing led to another. After 2008, I published a book on the the Wall Street collapse and the, the repercussions. Because for me, 2008 was um, to capitalism, that which 1991 was to communism, uh, a death knell, a, a major cash from which it would never recover Uh, and then of course the (laughs) the repercussions of that were that um, wall street's collapse led to the bankruptcy of every every single european bank and once that happened then flimsily financed states began to topple and greece my native greece was the first country state government uh, to go under and uh, then uh, the panic hit, uh, you know, the roof went through the roof and um, my panic and I started wa- um, warning Greek governments not to take a huge credit card from which to pretend to be repaying the debt that would never be repaid. And of course, this is exactly what they did. So we were condemned to permanent bankruptcy. Uh, and then the more I talked, the more I put forward proposals as to what uh, uh, should be happening, the nearer I got to ending up, this is from finance minister. I inherited the finance ministry, which was completely and utterly bankrupt. And um, so I was the finance minister of the most bankrupt state in Europe. Uh, my number one priority was to, um, to, to e- exit that bankruptcy um, my efforts were undermined by my own government, so I resigned. And you know, the rest, the rest is history, as they say.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. Um, so, just to kind of introduce your book briefly, techno feudalism seemed to me to encompass several things at once: um, kind of a lesson in historical materialism, a whistle stop tour of kind of capitalism's development an economic primer about the madness of financialization an intervention into kind of ongoing debates about the so-called new cold war and the second cold war or the second cold war sorry um and even partly a memoir and a piece of speculative fiction just very briefly um but ultimately kind of what the book aims to do um is to convince us of this emergence of what you call techno feudalism in the place of kind of you know, trusty old capitalist dynamics. So my first question is really broad. Could you just outline your thesis? What is techno-feudalism and why is capitalism's death not necessarily something to celebrate?
1: The the deeper cause that led me to writing this book is because, like many people, I've sensed that this crisis that we're experiencing, whether you live in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in Asia, wherever you might be, is not like the previous crisis. <laughs> there is something different about us, something deeper, something alien, something that is not redemptive, because sometimes, usually, crises are redemptive. So, if you have over, you know, exuberance, too much debt, or uh, uh, expectations that are too great, you need a little bit of a uh, correction in order to to recover from that. And that's what a redemptive crisis used to be. But this crisis that we're experiencing, especially after 2008, is not redemptive. Uh, and then at some point, I, re- I started feeling myself, sensing that um, what's happening is similar to what was going on towards the end of the 18th century, when uh, the world was being transformed after centuries of feudalism a new system a new way of doing things was emerging which was in the end capitalism and you know, that great transformation meant that power shifted from land to machinery to capital from rent to profit and something similar was happening to it, and that was the real cause Of our senses, this feeling, this sensation that uh, the world is changing in profound ways, not simply you know in a sine wave going up and down. So here is my thesis. Sounds exaggerated. Sounds crazy. Some people would say, Uh, because you see, wherever we look, we what we see is uh, the triumph of capital. Capital triumphs everywhere, from uh, you know the land to uh, the real estate world, to uh, education, health, uh, of course, uh, commerce, Uh, in space. You know, now we have private companies uh, um, reaching the moon uh, and owning the moon very soon. We have uh, capital triumphing in the genotype in women's wombs with surrogacy and so on. So how dare I say that capitalism is dead? (laughs) Well, capital is so triumphant. Well, that's precisely my point. My point is that capital became so triumphant and so unhinged that like a stupid virus, it mutated into such a potent virus that it killed off its host, capitalism. And to to, to be slightly more precise, so that that doesn't sound like an airy-fairy kind of theory, capitalism for me is a system that is predicated on two things. Two are the main elements of capitalism or pylons on which it sits. One is markets. Everything happens through markets under capitalism. So under feudalism, people worked, there was no labor market, no land market, real estate market, people worked. The sheriff on behalf of the landlord would collect a substantial percentage of the harvest. Uh, There was no market there. Then there would be a market, some of that harvest surplus would be sold off and there were markets for spices and this and that. But most of what people did did not go through markets. Capitalism puts the market at the center. That's one of the two elements of capitalism. The second element is, of course, profit. It's not rent. It's not the the share of the produce that uh, the feudal lord collected. Uh, it was the entrepreneurial profit, the profit collected by those capitalists who organized production around markets. And it seems to me that today, if you look carefully at uh, where the power lies, it lies with those who own a particular kind of capital, which lives in our phones, which lives in, in on this laptop, in this laptop, or to be more precise, in yeah. On, in the cloud, which of course is not a cloud. It is you know the huge server farms and the optic fiber cables and the cell towers and so on. This is machinery, it's a kind of capital, but it's a kind of capital which is very different to steam engines and industrial robots and all that. The people who own that power have managed to replace markets with digital platforms like anything from Amazon and Alibaba to Uber and Airbnb. Uh, and those are not markets. They look like markets, but they are not markets. If you look carefully at what Amazon does, it's not a market. It's a trading platform, but it is not a marketplace. It belongs to one person who collects forty percent of everything you pay on it, right? And that's more, much more like feudalism. Of course, it's a kind of techno feudalism, because it's uh, it's not on land that he has inherited; it is on a, a a cloud fiefdom that he has created out of research, development, and investment. That's why. I'm not saying that we're going back to feudalism. We're going forward to something that looks like feudalism, but isn't. It's techno-feudalism. And the second thing, of course, is that profits are disappearing. Now you have almost no correlation between profits and valuation of companies um, in the New York Stock Exchange. So, yeah, um, Facebook and um, Airbnb and Uber hardly ever made a profit. Some of them never made a profit. So profit is being sidelined in favor of a kind of rent it's not ground rent it's rent for access to those cloud fiefdoms digital platforms which is again a <laughs> kind of ground rent uh, but also only uh, for access to the cloud version of land um and so as I was thinking of all this, I was trying to imagine what the repercussions would be for younger people, people of your generation and younger generations. Uh, what the repercussions of that would be in the macroeconomic crisis, bouts of unemployment, the quality of jobs that are available to young people and not so young people, the effect on uh, geopolitics, uh, the new Cold War. In my estimation, the more I thought of it, the more I converged to the, to, to the view that the, the new Cold War that Donald Trump started between the United States and China, um, has uh, at its basis, at its epicentre, this uh, contest between the cloud capital of Silicon Valley and Wall Street on one hand and the Chinese cloud capital, the only other cloud capital in the world. Europe doesn't have any. That explains, if you want, the um, growing insignificance of the European Union and of Europe. So there, you know, one thought led to another, and this book came out.
0: Great. Right. And I think sort of an important distinction that you make within that kind of whole description of techno-feudalism is you know someone might say capitalism always has always used kind of technological innovation to kind of maximize what we might call like a relative surplus value I suppose in Marxist terms so the internet is always going to be vulnerable to co-optation by the ruling class or um, I don't know what you might call a kind of digital enclosure so how is what we witness witnessing today kind of different to simple incorporation into capitalist dynamics. Um, so, yeah, the distinction between cloud proles and cloud surfs is quite important there, I think, isn't it?
1: Um, Absolutely, it's central. It's central because, uh, you know, under, um, under monopoly capitalism, which was a phase of capitalism, you know, the Gilded Age, and the um, Henry Ford's and the Westinghouse's and the Edison's, Uh, they, They had a lot of power, which was based on technology. But they were very different beasts to Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, because they were in the business of cornering a market. A market which existed, they were cornering. And they were using their capital in order to concentrate it, to have more power, to buy politics, to ensure that, for instance, you know, the city of Chicago or New York or Los Angeles and San Francisco got rid of their trams and replaced them with their cars <laughs> or that uh, their electricity was being uh, monopolized. Uh, but in the end, they were selling industrial products. They were selling uh, things that their capital goods, their produced means of production. were producing, manufacturing uh, in association with proletarians. Uh, Jeff Bezos doesn't care about uh, production, he doesn't produce anything. He simply produces the fiefdom, the digital fiefdom, uh, where he has encased both users whose actual work in um, grading in um, liking or not liking, in posting reviews of books, of products and so on, add to his capital without them getting a single penny from him. That has never happened before, you know. Before uh, big tech, uh, it was only workers that created and engineers who created capital goods, like tractors and industrial robots. Now you and I are replenishing and reproducing the cloud capital of somebody like Bezos uh, who uses it in order to attract to his fiefdom, to his platform, capitalists who produce their and sell on it, their books, their uh, gadgets, their bicycles, their binoculars, whatever it is that they're selling. He collects 40% rent from them, cloud rent. Um, And all this capital accumulation is creating, is turning the majority are not proletarians into cloud servers. And the capitalists are being turned into vassals. And that's not capitalism as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. And I suppose there are two kinds of interlocking strands to your warnings about techno-feudalism insofar as, firstly, you've got a structural argument about the way in which cloud capital's kind of material basis sucks profits into the hands of what you call cloud lists via rent extraction. Um, And then there's another kind of strand about how techno-feudalism affects like, I suppose the psychological or effective realms um like creating these new compulsions and imperatives so you know someone approaching this concept might think well you know people have been trying to sell me stuff for for, you know decades and decades like how is this different you know Mm -hmm. um in some ways the critiques surrounding manufacturing of desires are fairly well-worn arguments um so could you just expand a little a bit about um you know on how Cloud p- platforms are manipulating us in new ways and generating kind of new forms of uh, you know, morbid forms of sociality, really.
1: Humanity has been uh, under the spell of um, very talented people who had the capacity to modify our behavior and our thinking since we developed uh, language. So there's nothing new about that, as you put it. Indeed, advertising made uh, a corporate success out of grabbing our attention through television, through posters in highways, and um, input in desires into our bosom, into our mind, into our heart. I use in the book. Uh, I use Don Draper as a as, as a paradigm. Mm-hmm. That uh, the, the 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 character, the protagonist, in, fictional protagonist in Mad Men, one of my favorite series on television. Uh, the point I'm making about technofeudalism is that for the first time in the history of humanity, this behavioral modification, the propaganda, think, yeah, has been automated. Don Draper is no longer a human being. It is an algorithm. And it is an algorithm that manages to do the most dialectical of things. Don Draper, the fictional character of the archetypal advertiser, or marketer, uh, is this mythical, talented person who sits on a couch, consumes a lot of bourbon, and occasionally comes up with a brilliant idea on how to convince us to buy Coca-Cola or Big Macs or, you know, Ford cars or uh, to to buy a particular kind of camera or whatever, right? But that's one way, one way and indirect. So it's one way in the sense that he has this idea, he designs a brilliant poster or television ad, which goes from the transmitter, whether that is the poster or the television station, into me, into my into my senses. And that's it. One way. End of story. If it, he convinces me to buy it, I buy it. But then what, the, the reason why I'm saying it's indirect is because if I get convinced that I want to buy a Big Mac, I have to go to McDonald's to buy it. Now, with the algorithmic or cloud capital, as I put it, as I describe it, you've got the algorithm that works, let's say, on on Amazon's Alexa or uh, the Google Assistant or just anything that lives in TikTok or Facebook and so on. And what, what happens is that this algorithm is automated. It's not a human being. I train it to train me to train it, to train me, to train it, to train me. That's why I'm saying this is an infinite dialectical regress. This is a two-way process now. It's an infinite two-way process whereby I'm being trained to train it, to be trained, to train it, to give give it a fantastically good mapping of who I am and what I care about so that the machine gives me the algorithm, gives me great advice on what books to buy and what music, music to listen to. So yeah, I don't know about you, but Spotify knows me. He knows me brilliantly when Spotify suggests a a particular kind of music. I may not absolutely adore it, but I would never dislike it because it knows me (laughs) Mm. and we're impressionable human beings. And this individuated two way dialectical process is a remarkable process for convincing me to, to buy stuff. And with AI now being added as an additional layer it you know when the interface becomes far more personal through AI with GPT five which hasn't come out but it will come out that power is um, re- re- risen to the to, to the nth uh, and 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 so it can, the machine learns me so well it knows how to put into my mind that I want to buy something but moreover it then proceeds with a direct sale it sells it to me directly so the same algorithm that Amazon uses in order to learn me so that it can tell me to buy X, sells me X directly, bypassing markets. And it is the same algorithm. That is what really fascinates me and, 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 and throws me. The same algorithm is driving the proletarian in the Amazon warehouse, who is you know wearing something like this on, on his or her wrist, and monitors the rate at, and the pace at which or with which this worker goes around about the Amazon warehouse, finding the item that it has convinced me to buy and sending it to me directly. You know, it's Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times um, meets uh, Terry Gilliam's uh, Brazil, if anybody Mm -hmm. has watched this movie.
0: Mm, It's a great movie. um, Yeah, everyone watch it. (laughs) Um, So just kind of looking more broadly at kind of where you're intervening with this book um because it's certainly not um the first to recognize the all-encompassing power of big tech and silicon valley i guess the most um well-known instantiation is shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalism which conceptualizes big tech power more in terms of monopolization corey doctor is another one that springs to mind uh, Mackenzie Walk has grappled with the death of capitalism as kind of useful concepts for which to index various forms of oppression. So I'm just wondering what you felt was kind of missing from these debates, any potential missteps in these theories? Yeah, just where your book kind of makes this intervention, really.
1: Well, I love all the three books you mentioned. Okay. But I think that I'm telling a story which is importantly different mm. uh, to begin with, uh, regarding surveillance capitalism. Well, clearly I disagree that this is still capitalism. You mm. see, and then, uh Zuboff maps out beautifully the way we're uh, surveyed and the way in which the algorithms uh, troll our minds and maximize the power of the advertisers upon us. She's very good at that. Where, where I think we need to make one step beyond is to conceptualize this algorithmic capital, not as a brainwashing machine, but as a new form of capital. A form of capital, which is not a produced means of production, but it is a produced means of behavioral modification, which creates its own category of um, surplus value rent extraction, and it creates a new dynamic. Uh, So it is crucial for me, and I try to argue that in the book, that we realize that this cloud capital, this is a new form of capital. (laughs) It is not as if the monopolists, the same old monopolists of yesteryear, uh, have now a greater power to brainwash us. This is not just a question of us being brainwashed. The form of capital that they have developed, which I call cloud capital, has created a new socioeconomic mode of production, which is no longer capitalist. And that has repercussions that go very well beyond brainwashing. And let me be a bit more specific. And that's where Corey Doctorow is very strong, very good at identifying that. Uh, If you read Surveillance Capitals by by Zuboff, it is focused on how the conglomerate that sells stuff to us becomes far more powerful as a result of this algorithmic capital. Well, that misses a very important point. Capitalists producing stuff are also hugely exploited by the Jeff Bezos, by the Cloudalists. So it is not as if this algorithm these algorithms are simply boosting the capacity of capitalists to exploit us and to make us buy stuff, to brainwash us. No, the split happens within capital. There are those who own cloud capital and those who do not, and own just capital. The ones who makes who make the electric bikes, huh? they're capitalists, but they are just as exploited as you and me are by the cloudalists. So that is the new dimension that my book brings in, the idea that the split of capital in capital and cloud capital creates a process by which the standard capitalists are becoming vassals. And the surplus value that capitalists extract from workers in the factory is now siphoned off away from the capitalist class towards this new class, this new ruling class uh, of the owners of cloud capital. That's the fundamental difference. Now, with Mackenzie Walker, I, I love her book. I think it's a great book. Uh, I read it I, as I was in, in the middle of writing my own, I have to say. Um, and I was very happy to read it because suddenly I realized I'm not the only madman or mad person uh, who thinks that this, this is something substantial, that this is simply, this is much more than uh, surveillance capitalism, because Mackenzie Walk agrees on that. Um, the... There's nothing that is in the book that I disagree with. (laughs) And I think it is a very forward looking and pressing book. My difference is that um, she's talking about the death of capital. I'm talking about the birth of a new new form of capital, Mm -hmm. cloud capital. Now, Cory Doctorow is is a hero to me. I absolutely adore his blog. I adore his books. the, the internet con is a is, is a must read. and I'm very glad that he has good things to say about um is my book. Okay. He has developed he he puts a much more emphasis on what he calls this great term um, which I'm sure you know and shitification. Yeah mm-hmm. uh, which is very consistent with my view of, of cloud capital. You know these cloud as cloud serves, cloud 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 which uh, attract both users and exploit us uh, as cloud serves and capitalists that turned into vassals, and how the moment they they grab us, yeah, that's what Corey does, explains beautifully. Then they just buy lots of shit on both consumers, users and producers, uh, because again, uh, the, the the slight. <laughs> difference of opinion, not of opinion of opinion, different emphasis that I have from Corey is that he's looking at ways in which this ncdification process can be regulated, can be impeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not that interested in that because even if you know regulatory authorities stop Google, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok from ncdifying their cloud thieves, uh, that will simply mean that cloud capital is going is not going to undermine itself but mm-hmm. it will undermine society and it will undermine any prospect of democracy, any prospect of um, an environmental movement that arrests uh, the steady march towards uh, climate catastrophe. Um, I emphasize not regulation as Cory does, but the importance of taking over taking over the algorithms and socializing
0: them. Mm-hmm. So maybe we need interestification as like a means for I don't know raise people's consciousness about, you know, the shittiness of <laughs> living under technopetism maybe. Um so could you kind of just briefly touch um because I'm not an economist and I found it really helpful a lot of the parts of the book which were, you know, very accessible in in that sense. Um could you briefly touch briefly touch um, on how the emergence of technophilism was aided by the financial kind of chicanery that took place around the 2008 crisis, because I think it's quite useful to know the history here in terms of how the cloud lists you described took advantage of what was, you know, a relatively short-lived moment in the trajectory of finance capitalism, really.
1: Luisa, I think that you should um, count your blessings. You're not an economist because <laughs> you've spent 10, 15 years uh, infecting your mind with economic models and your capacity to understand what's happening around the world would have been diminished. I am an economist who actually thinks that economics is bad for our mental health and our capacity to understand the world we live in. <laughs> but having said that. Let me answer your question. Um, okay, so there are two main processes that we're working in parallel to one another uh, and coincidentally in parallel to one another uh, to bring about uh, the rise of cloud capital and the um, emergence of technical feudalism. One was the steady privatization of the internet. The original internet was a kind of commons uh, mm-hmm. until a new enclosure was begun by big tech to privatize it and to use the fact that you and I do not own our digital identity, you cannot prove who you are on the internet unless a bank or Google um, vouch for you. <laughs> uh, not owning our digital identity is massive. It's uh, such a fantastic opportunity for those cloud analysts to take control and privatize the whole thing. So think about you know why do you need Uber to call a taxi or Lyft? Because you do not own your digital identity you can't say to on the internet my name is Risa I'm on, 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 I'm at the intersection of such and such Street and I want to go to the airport you can't do that because you know nobody knows no, nobody knows who you are really no one you can't prove who you are that's but but Uber does because you have given them your credit card account so a bank has told the conglomerate who you are and therefore you are encased in Uber once you're, you're, you use Uber, as are the uh, proletarians working behind the wheel, okay? Uh, but that process hmm, was due to the privatization of the internet through the fact that we do not own our identity. That's one process that's happening. Mm-hmm. It was happening before 2008. Um, the second process, of course, was the repercussions of the 2008 complete collapse of uh, Wall Street. and. Uh, the panic in which people like Hank Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time, under George W. Bush, and then after that, Tim Geithner, appointed by Barack Obama. Uh, from early 2009 onwards, the central banks of the United States, of the United Kingdom, of the European Union, of Japan, of Sweden, of Switzerland, and so on and so forth, uh, they started printing, They, in my estimation, they printed $35 trillion between 2009 and last year. And they gave it to the bankers, they gave it to the financiers. Now, if you're a banker, your number one nightmare scenario is to have billions and not being being able to lend it to some. Uh, that's, that's your nightmare is to have money, not any customers to borrow it from you. And the problem was that at the same time that they were printing these trillions, the central banks, the governments were imposing austerity. <laughs> In the United Kingdom, in Greece, of course, in Greece, here we were the champions of austerity. In Germany, in France, in the United States as well, Obama would talk about the stimulus it was never real. And if you put together the state governments and the federal government together, they were practicing austerity. So when you have huge quantities of money in the banks and very little money around <laughs> outside the banks, you know capitalists are not going to invest because they look at the little people and say, oh, as if I'm going to invest, those people won't have the money to buy high, high value added stuff from me. So, but you have the bank calling you, you don't want to invest because the little people have no money, but the bank calls you and says, I've got 200 million, do you want it? I'll give it to you for free, no interest. You say, okay, if you, if you really want me to take it, I'll take it, I'll take it off your hand, your hands. And then what do you do with it? You don't want to invest it. Right? You don't want to spend it because you have to give it back, even though the interest rate is zero. So what you, do, what you do is you go to Wall Street and you buy back your own shares with the money that the central bank gave you. And that pushes your share price up. If you're the CEO, your bonus is linked to the share price. You're laughing all the way to the bank. Okay. Um, so capital did not get reproduced. I mean, it was not replenished. There was no investment took place between 2009 and 2020, very little investment, um, real investment, you know, machines and so on. The only capitalists who actually invested in capital were the Jeff Bezos and the Zuckerbergs, the big tech people who took it. So they took trillions provided by the state to create the cloud capital. They gave them a capacity to extract from cloud service, free labor and from capitalists, all those profits. That's more or less the story.
0: Yeah, that was really helpful. Um, But let's just pivot to another kind of significant element of your argument. uh, I still want to miss this bit out, uh, which relates to kind of the global impact of techno feudalist dynamics um, and the emergence of the so-called new cold war with China. So could you just give us a brief overview of this, this chapter, how has cloud capital disrupted dollar hegemony? and how are the U.S. and China kind of making moves to protect their cloud uh, fiefdoms?
1: Well, to, to introduce our audience to the to the way in which my thinking evolved about this, mm-hmm. and, you know, why is there a new Cold War? Why did Donald Trump, Trump start a new Cold War against China when, you remember, in 2016 he banned Huawei from the United States, mm-hmm. and then he banned another one, ZD, and then, he, and then it, it all started. Uh, now there were there are people, of course, who always say, "Oh, Donald Trump is a madman." But do you expect him to have reasons? Well, I never believe that he was. A, he, he's an evil person, but he's not a madman. And in any case, when Joe Biden, who is the anti-Trump, <laughs> came in, he didn't stop that. He turbocharged it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he actually made the Cold War between the United States and China even harsher and and far more dangerous. Uh, with the ban of uh, selling of any technologically advanced microchips to China, it's effectively like declaring an economic war against China. So I, w- I, you know, I was, I was asking questions, and I wasn't getting any, any answers. The, the answers I were getting were re- really inane, like uh, Taiwan, as if Taiwan is a new thing. It's been happening since, 19- since 1950. Um, or that you know, anyway. So I started thinking very. Hard and carefully about it, and it. it m- m- my conclusion is this: the reason why the United States is so hegemonic, uh, especially after nineteen seventy-one, the end of Bretton Woods, when it went into the red, the United States is the only superpower in the history of the world. Compared to the Roman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Dutch, the, the British Empire, the even the Soviet Union, the only empire in the history of the world whose power rose as it was getting more into the red. (laughs) That that is remarkable, right? And of course, the reason is the dollar. Because the dollar plays a role that no currency has ever played in the past. Not even dominant currencies like the British pound, pound or pound sterling. What has been happening since the 1970s is the United States is expanding its trade deficit. So it imports a lot more into the United States than it exports. Now, no other country can do this, because if you keep doing this, then you go bankrupt, your currency is going to collapse. But because the dollar was the only currency in the world that people wanted, that capitalists wanted, even if they didn't want to buy anything from the United States. So take, for instance, Britain. If you want pound sterling and you're not in Britain, why do you want pound sterling? Because you want to buy something from the British whether this is you know, British aerospace engine, or you want to go on holiday to Britain, and therefore you need to, to, to have pounds to spend in Britain. Right? America, the American currency is the only currency people want, even if they don't want to buy anything from the United States. Why? Because if you want to buy oil, you need, to, you need dollars to buy it. So even if you buy oil from Nigeria, that has been refined by a French company, and you buy this in in mm-hmm. Algeria, Again, you need dollars for it. <laughs> uh, copper, rare earths. If you've got lots of money, if you are, you know, a Saudi Arabian magnate, oil magnate, what are you going to store your money in? So, yeah, essentially you take your money and you put take it to, to Wall Street, and therefore you are financing the deficit of the United States, both the trade deficit and the budget deficit, the, the government deficit. And that is <laughs> this is remarkable. It's an amazing scheme the United States has created, whereby effectively it gains strength from other people's profits. Because if you are an American, if you're a German car company, Mercedes, right? You sell Mercedes to the Americans in Miami, in California, you get dollars. This is like IOUs. The Americans print them and give them to you. And what do you do with those? You take them back to Wall Street. So the the loop is recycled, but that is predicated upon the dollar system being the world payment system. Ask ourselves the following question. If my thesis is right, the cloud capital is now becoming the major source of power, power generally, economic power, political power, discursive power, who's got cloud capital? The Americans and the Chinese, nobody else. So there is a Google, and there is a Chinese Google. There is no European Google. There is no Latin American Google. There is no Indian Google. There is no Russian Google, right? But there is a Chinese Google called Baidu. There is Jeff Bezos' Amazon.com, and there is Jack Ma's Alibaba. There is no German one. There is no French one. So there is cloud capital in the United States, and there is cloud capital in China. The difference is that the Chinese capital cloud capital is bigger and better than the American one, which concentrates the mind just to say it. And why is that? It's not that the Chinese are cleverer than the Americans, technologically wise, no. In the United States, you have a schism between the East Coast and the West Coast, between Wall Street, which is in New York, and Silicon Valley, which is in, which is in California. Wall Street bankers hate Big Tech. They love it. Why? Because Big Tech, Apple and Google uh, and all these people have what it takes to replace Wall Street if, 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 with internet banking, in, if, uh, internet technologies, with what's called fintech financial te- technologies, uh, Apple could replace the Bank of America like that tomorrow morning. The, what doesn't that, that doesn't happen because the, the the federal government and the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the, of the United States, is in the pockets of Wall Street, and they would not allow Apple to replace Bank of America. So there is a conflict within the United States between financial capital and cloud capital. In China, that conflict doesn't exist because the Chinese Communist Party makes sure that the financial capitalists and the cloud capitalists in China work as one. So in in China, there is an app you can have on your phone called WeChat. WeChat is an app that we don't have in the West because we're not allowed to have it in the West. We could have it, but we don't have it. Uh, Because WeChat allows you to do what Netflix does. You can watch a movie, Spotify, listen to music, um, uh, send messages, uh, emails, do your shopping, what Amazon.com, all that you can do on WeChat. And you could do something else that you cannot do here in the West. And that is make payments for free to anyone for free, to any bank account. Anybody who has a one account in the world, you can make payments to and receive payments for no fee. That would be a nightmare for Wall Street. <laughs> right. yeah. Now, and so he, this is how we come to the new Cold War. As we speak, and this was the result of some research I did while I was writing the book. Uh, well, actually, not as we speak, two years ago there were German producers, manufacturers, who had WeChat accounts and another account, uh, another application, payments application, that was made available by the central bank of China, the state-owned central bank of China, digital wallet. And that is a remarkable thing for a German manufacturer to have. And I use the example in the book take, and this is a real example, I use pseudonyms, not actual names. Take France, who has a, a manufacturing facility somewhere in Hamburg, making propellers, ship propellers, huge propellers, using aluminum that he imports from China. And then the propeller, once he makes it in Hamburg, he sends it to China, to a shipyard, to be installed on a, on a, on a ship. Right now, this firm is doing business with China, both in terms of importing and exporting. Uh, Normally, he would have to have an account in Deutsche Bank or Finance Bank and to make payments through the European Central Bank, the American dollar payment system, going to the Central Bank of China and then going to the private bank account, Chinese bank account of his uh, partner in China, in in Shanghai. And then the money would have to to go backwards when he sells a propeller. With this app that I'm referring to, right? um, of course, it it is in one, but he doesn't care because he buys in one, he sells in one. At the press of a button, no fees, not going through the European Central Bank, not going through the Fed, not going through the Western payment system, not going through the dollar system, these transactions can take place. That transaction which I just described is a clear and present nightmare for Washington DC, because it means that its monopoly over the payment system that keeps American hegemony going in proportion to America's deficits is gone. That is more dangerous for for the United States than a nuclear warhead. Mm -hmm. And that is for me why there is a major clash now between the United States and China.
0: Yeah, great, thank you. That's really comprehensive. Um, And I guess a good kind of question, final, question really is what do we do about feudalism? So in the book, you talk about, um, I suppose, the relative insufficiency or ill suitedness of kind of labor union organizing and standing up to the power of um, cloud capital. Um, but I suppose some of the left's prescriptions for tackling capitalism still apply. Maybe organizing, boycotting, raising consciousness to use a kind of old fashioned <laughs> term. Where do we go from here,
1: I suppose? they are completely and totally topical and to the point. We need to we need to there there is no substitute for organizing, organizing political action the solution is not technical there is no technical fix to techno-feudalism there is only political intervention solidarity and it has to be internationalist because cloud capital like financial capital is internationalist. Uh, We need to be internationalist. So to, to cut a very long answer short, uh, there is the question of means and ends. What weapons, instruments do we use, ways, methods, and what is our objective? Uh, in terms of the methods, I think that it is essential. It's not enough to organize workers anymore. Mm-hmm. You need to organize the cloud service as well. You know The people who are on the phones. So here's an example of something I've tried, we're trying, some of us are trying. Imagine we want uh, to, go in, to, 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 to support uh, workers in an Amazon warehouse like Chris Smalls in, uh, in New Jersey, who, uh, who struggled and struggled to create a small union there uh, to negotiate uh, better terms and conditions for Amazon workers. Well, imagine if we had a global campaign one day, let's say next Monday or on Black Friday or whenever, Uh, of saying international solidarity with the workers in uh, Staten Island, New Jersey, Amazon workers, nobody visits Amazon.com for one day. Nobody. It's not a great sacrifice. You just don't visit Amazon.com for one day. Not forever. Just for one day. And start a rolling strike, which we do every Black Friday. When I say we, I'm I'm referring to the Progressive International that I'm part of. Uh, With some success, you start... A strike inside Amazon warehouses from Vietnam all the way to Seattle on a day when cloud servers go on strike. They don't visit Amazon.com. This kind of combination of uh, organizing workers and organizing cloud servers is, I think, the the way to... to, to, uh, to, uh, That is the means. The end should be the socialization of cloud capital. Because regulation taxation is not going to work. Because anybody who owns that cloud capital, those algorithms, the AI, is going to have an an inordinate amount of power over the rest of society, which they are going to use in a way that is detrimental to our capacity to reproduce ourselves as a species. Uh, in in the end, they will commit suicide too. They don't know it, but they will, because you know, the, the, our, our planet is going going to to, to to eject us as a species if we continue this way. Uh, so. That's the short answer to a very, very, very poignant question.
0: Great, thank you. Um, so, finally, I suppose now that techno feudalism is kind of out in the world, you might have other things going on. Um, I've heard heard talk of a new documentary you've been involved with. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about that.
1: What's what's going on now? <laughs> well, the, the the thank you for asking because it's not so much about me. It's um, mm-hmm. there is a a young British artist. His name is Raul Martinez, Raul Martinez. Uh, he's a great portrait artist. His uh, paintings are in the National Portrait Gallery in London. He's a magnificent young man. He's a philosopher, he's an author, he's a filmmaker, a painter. And he honoured me some years ago by locking me up for more than a week in the studio, five hours a day, um, picking our brains in front of the camera. And he created his own thing. I may be a talking head there, but he's created a, a documentary. A six part documentary called In the Eye of the Storm. And if you want to visit it, if anybody wants to visit it, just go to Eye of the Storm, not in the eye, dot eye info, I N F O, and you can watch it there. Uh and you know that's 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 his story, and it's a remarkable story about capitalism, about techno feudalism, about uh the climate disaster that we are facing and your generation is facing. But since you asked me about what I'm doing, um, look, I'm involved in politics, right? But this is boring. I'm not going to bother you with that. Mm-hmm. I'm running elections here, European Parliament elections. So I'm just bored even saying it. But I'm writing another book now because I always need to have a book um, for therapy. I don't have a psychotherapist. I don't take drugs. Maybe I should. um, But I write books as therapy. And this is about women that have influenced me from my family, especially women that I never got to know who influenced me through other women that I did get to know. Like, for instance, a grandmother of mine that I discovered um, after my father died two years ago, that um, she was a, a, a member of the Egyptian Feminist Union in 1923 in Cairo, organizing women's strikes and uh, solidarity uh, health networks fascinating
0: <laughs> yeah that sounds yeah it sounds really interesting um, and I'm impressed you found books as <laughs> writing books as a way to uh, as a therapy it's not necessarily something that everyone who writes book would agree with I think but um, uh, yeah thanks so much for uh, joining us Yanis um, well, thank
1: it's been you. a pleasure
0: thanks,
1: thank you thank you so much for um, supporting books not just me but just books in general
0: yeah thank you